Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Expat Empire Podcast. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that we're offering a free consulting call to anyone interested in moving abroad. Whether you're thinking about retiring somewhere warm, starting an international career, or becoming a digital nomad, we're ready to help you think through the next steps in your journey. Send us a message at expatempire.com to schedule your call today. With that said, let's start the conversation. Hey, Peter, thanks so much for joining me today on the Expat Empire podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me, David. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Awesome. Yeah, it'll be great to hear about some of your adventures abroad. You've definitely had quite a few and been to some really cool countries. So I'm glad to have you on the show and, of course, excited to jump into it. So if you could start out by telling us a bit about where you're originally from, where around the world you've lived so far and where you live right now, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So whenever anybody asks me that question, I have a hard time answering it because while I did grow up in California for 22 years, I don't really consider myself from there. So I grew up in California in in a place called Napa, which people will know because of the wine industry. Mm -hmm. But then I moved to Arizona in 2012. And that's where I ended up going to school up in Northern Arizona uh, University, which is in Flagstaff near the Grand Canyon. Really beautiful mountain town. It's awesome. And then as far as where I've lived since then, I've been really lucky to have lived in both Europe and in Asia. So I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more depth, but I lived in the Netherlands for six months while in school. And then I lived in South Korea for a year. Great. And I guess now you're back in the States or maybe that's jumping to the end of the story, but (laughs) that is no, that's a good point. I should have mentioned that right now I'm back in Arizona and in Chandler, Arizona, which is Phoenix area. So great. I've been here ever since probably like February of 2020. Awesome. Yeah. So let's dive into that some more. And of course, I think the best place to start is probably at the beginning. So if you could tell us a bit about what got your interest peaked in trying to go abroad and especially thinking about going to uh, study abroad in a place like the Netherlands, it would be good to hear kind of where all that originated for you. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about origins, I'll probably have to start a little earlier than college just because I I was thinking about this recently. I was I was really lucky that my family hosted a lot of different exchange students when I was growing up. So some of my earliest memories was living with people from Europe. Mm. There was a guy when I was probably six years old who lived with us. His name was Marcus Fischer. He's a German guy. And to me as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old watching this guy go to high school with my brother, one of my older brothers, and live with us I think that was one of my first exposures to like, you know, more personally to somebody who's from a different culture. And that, and that was very formative and, and throughout high school, you know, and even, even later on, my parents hosted several different people. We had some people from Spain, some people from Italy, some French people that all lived with us for periods of time. And, and so I think for me, that kind of started my interest in culture because I I thought it was so cool how different everybody was. Mm -hmm. The other thing, I guess, 
to to note that is I am one of eight and I'm kind of in the middle. And so I don't know if it's a middle child syndrome or what, <laughs> but I don't like to do things the way that other people do them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all of my siblings had gone to study abroad and I thought that was cool, but they all studied abroad in Rome because they went to the same college and they did the same study abroad program, mm-hmm. which was really cool. But I was like, I don't, I don't want to study abroad. I don't, I don't want to go to that school and I don't want to study abroad um, in Rome. I want to do something different. So as I mentioned before, I moved to Arizona in 2012 and I ended up in NAU, Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. And they had a really good program to go to the Netherlands. Mm. I was studying journalism and this program was for intercultural communication. So I was like, well, it seemed like a good fit to me because of, you know, as I said before, my fascination with cultural exchange. And so I started learning more about the Netherlands and I just said, you know what, let's, let's do it. I'll go. And I went to the school called NHTV in uh, Breda, which is um, North Brabant, which is pretty close to Belgium. Mm. It's like maybe like 40 minutes driving from Belgium, I'd say. And it was awesome. I loved it because I loved it because of how like straight up Dutch people are. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I highly, I really value authenticity and Dutch people are nothing if not authentic. So for a lot of people that was, is very like standoffish or it puts them on, mm. on guard, but I tend to be that way. So I felt like from the very get go in the Netherlands, mm. I was really, I felt really comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it's good to be able to experience that different culture and realize that you fit in there quite well. Did you have any, I don't know, initial experiences that showed you that uh, you could work with the direct culture there? Or was it just a, a sense that you got in, in your typical daily communications? What was it that really showed you that, hey, uh, I fit with this pretty well? Because I, I'm not sure if, did you kind of know about that type of culture and directness before you went there? Or did you learn about it on the fly? Yeah, I had an advisor for my study abroad program who let me know a bit about like, <laughs> All right, Dutch people are like seven feet tall, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and and yeah, they're they're very direct about things. So I was given some warnings, mm-hmm. but to be honest with you, well, so first of all, the program that I was in was it, it was a Dutch program, but it was also international school. So it's not like it's just Dutch mm-hmm. people. There was people from all over Europe studying there, and even from South America. I had a really good friend who was from Brazil, for example. But I, I guess, yeah, it's a hard, hard to answer that question. Mm. I think it just naturally for me, I, I've always been a very outspoken person. I, I don't like when people, you can tell they feel a certain way, but they don't say mm. it. And so to me, it was like refreshing to have a Dutch person come up to be like, hey, you look like shit. <laughs> and we'll study you, you know, <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of the friends that you made there, did you find that because you were an exchange student for those six months or so that you ended up being with people in your program, maybe from other parts of the world? Or did you find close relationships with the local students as well? How, how did you navigate that? And where did you find your closest friends? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Well, so I guess I have to step back a little bit because... 
I traveled for about a month before I ended up in the Netherlands. And uh, as we mentioned before, my family growing up, we were able to host mm. a bunch of students. Well, it, there was one family, the Desazus, which when I was in grade school, they actually were going to the same school as me. But later on, one of their sons was studying wine since their, their dad was also in the wine industry. Mm. And so he came and lived with us in his early 20s. So that was much more like later on. and so. I thought, well, I need to visit Francois in France. So the first, the first two places I went were England, where I had a good, a good friend who lived there, and then in South France before I went to the Netherlands. So I had already had friends that I made in the U.S. Mm-hmm. that I was able to go visit and see. And as I'm sure you know, like it's such a different thing to see somebody in your own like stomping grounds versus mm. going to theirs. Right. And I feel like that's always like a really, really cool, unique experience to be able to do that. So I had those kind of friends, but as far as like making local friends, predominantly my friends were definitely from the program, mm-hmm. but I was able to, to really like, you know, for example, Christmas is like a big holiday mm. there, but more like St. Nicholas Day rather than Christmas Day. So around Christmas time, I didn't really have plans. I had plans for St. Nicholas, but I didn't have plans for Christmas. And one of my Dutch friends, uh, Laura, asked me if I wanted to stay with her and her family. Mm. So like, I got to meet other people's families. I actually stayed with two different families around Christmas time, which was really cool. So like, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> No, it's good to get a chance to also have that local experience with the uh, traditions as well. And, and also to have someone there to spend those key holidays with, which can otherwise potentially get kind of lonely. And yeah, I think that's a good yeah. place to be in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you think about culture shocks. I think the bigger ones are when like you're like you're used to doing something a certain way and then all of a sudden it's it's not available mm-hmm. or it's done very differently there. And I don't know if I had anything that was too crazy of a culture shock, but it, it is always interesting to be like, how do, what am I supposed to do? Like I normally celebrate Christmas, but where am I going to do this? Right. I was lucky that people were really inviting to bring me into their homes or something. And how did you find the school system there uh, in the Netherlands compared to what you saw in the United States? Did you find it? comparable level of rigor or i mean of course at the same time i'm sure you're trying to have a lot of fun as an exchange student so it depends on how much you're focused on your studies but it'd be good to hear if uh, it was a pretty similar experience or what some of the challenges or changes that you experienced there yeah a good question so first of all the grading system is totally different Hmm. and the way that it was explained to me at least is that well, they don't do like an ABC grading system like you would in the US with a GPA, like kind of weighted system. So that made it a little bit weird when you were trying to translate your grades back to your home university in the US. So, right. And the other part of that is if it were a graded system, let's say a C would be a good grade to a Dutch person because it's really just about passing. Mm. So there's a cultural mm. difference there that's pretty big that, hey, we want to, you to be able to show me that you can do it. If you can do it, you'll get a job. 
you're not going to get an A grade unless you're like actually perfect. Right. And so that was a pretty different way of thinking of it. So students would just aim to pass. Like at least Dutch students really would really aim to pass. So you would see a difference between the Dutch students. And I, I thought it was, I was interesting. Like if you're like watching a, a German student study versus the Dutch student study versus like a French student or some of my friends from like Finland or whatever, like they were all like very different about mm-hmm. like what was important to focus on. I noticed that people who are not from the Netherlands seem to be a lot more concerned about their grades. Mm-hmm. I certainly was because I needed to, to make it translate back well. Right. So there's that aspect of it. And then the other side was, at least in the program that I was in, there was a heavy emphasis on actually hands-on projects with other students. Mm-hmm. So I was spending a lot of time working on, you know, I was studying film, for example. So we'd actually be out going and filming things or like, learning how to do like a live broadcast which was incredibly valuable to be able to actually do a real professional project Mm. with other students like in an actual setting you do some of that in the u.s curriculum but not nearly as much as you could i think and so there's a much heavier emphasis on those Mm. sorts of like very practical projects i guess yeah, that makes sense. I, I found when I was studying in Singapore that the local students, maybe a bit contrary to your experience, were extremely focused on the grades. And I also had yeah. to uh, translate my grades back. So I was worried about that. But I had other friends in the exchange program from other countries and universities yeah. that only needed to get a passing grade. So you could see quite a variety in seriousness and, and uh, you know dedication to the studies that each student had. Yeah, no, I I don't mean to say that Dutch students are not good students. They they definitely are. But there were times when you would be in a group and you'd be like, well, thank God, I at least have a couple other exchange students <laughs> because they're they're gonna like actually work hard versus some some other students you just knew, didn't know. They were like kind of an ace in the hole. You're like, are they gonna be right? Are they gonna be taking this seriously or not? Or are they just trying to pass? You know. Yeah, I can imagine there's some cultural differences and exchanges going on there, especially as it approaches the uh, the schoolwork. But as you were wrapping up those six months or so that you spent in the Netherlands, like how did you think about going back to the U.S. from there? Were you thinking, you know, how can I make this longer, or were you kind of thinking maybe it's time to to make it back? I mean, what was your mentality around it, and did you think about trying to make it back to the Netherlands in the future? Yeah, yeah, all all good questions. So first of all, it was crazy fast because one of the challenges of that program I didn't get a chance to mention is I was going in as a junior, which is third year for my university, but I could take classes from first, second, third, or fourth year, which is what they call it in the Dutch system. And so because of that, it was kind of weird to plan my schedule because the fourth year classes don't they don't worry about like lining up with the first year classes mm, you know what I mean? right so for, as an exchange student it was actually really challenging to figure out like how do i take the classes i need to take but also make sure that they're not like conflicting with each other and as i was wrapping up my program i had a, a lot of crazy things that happened like i had to take a couple of my exams even in the u.s mm. so it was kind of a it was kind of hectic to get back in that sense, because my senior year was starting in Arizona 
before my program ended oh, wow. in the Netherlands. Actually, I don't think they do the second semester program there anymore because my specific class had such a hard time. I, was, I think I'm the only person who graduated from that program who was there as an exchange from the US. Wow. There was like five of us and I don't think I maybe one other person got their minor from that, but so that side of it was a whirlwind. Right. But as far as me like wanting to leave or stay, I've never really felt like oh, I need to get back to the mm. US at any point in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I love being I love being an expat. Like I I don't know how to explain it, but just there's something about the expat way of life that's you're in this weird gray zone, right? Like you're not a local, but you're also being included. It, so there's like some spots where like you can really feel connected to the local community or culture, but there's also not as the same kinds of expectations mm-hmm. for you because you are a foreign. I know it just gives you like a, a sense of freedom that's from yeah, you're just given a grace period. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I it's hard to explain. <laughs> sure. I always love that, you know, because it's like you can play the foreigner card at any time, right. like even if it's not fair. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> so you you made it back to the U.S. Then sounds like you managed to wrap up your studies and <laughs> and make it through that difficult process. But after that, were you thinking about then starting your career after university in the United States, or were you already thinking about those international opportunities? I was already thinking about getting back overseas. Yeah, I, I didn't ever really want to leave. Mm. I could have stayed. I could have stayed a lot longer. But I mean, it was good. It was good to finish up my program. I got my bachelor's in journalism and my minor in international communication because of that study abroad mm. program. And I, one of the other really cool things, and this is what's awesome about travel, is you make so many connections, right? Mm-hmm. Like that you wouldn't be able to make otherwise. And I think especially for the other students I'm, I met who are from other countries, we were able to really bond over the fact that like, hey, we're both foreigners here, mm-hmm. you know? Right. It's, there's something about two expats meeting each other and saying like, we get the challenge of this and we also get the allure of this. Mm-hmm. I think that makes your bond a little bit stronger. So. I was really fortunate to stay in contact with, I still am in contact with a lot of the people I Mm. went to school with. And also, I ended up being a cultural ambassador for both my study abroad program in the Netherlands and one in the US. Mm. So the year after, a bunch of the students that I went to school with in the Netherlands, they came to do a journalism workshop in Flagstaff and I got to just show them my stomping grounds. Right. You know, (laughs) do all the really American things with them. So in that sense, that was like a cool, a cool thing for me to be able to do. Like, hey, you know, let me let me return the favor for you to show you what's up over here. But yeah, I was definitely I was ready. I was ready to go back. I, I just didn't know how mm. it was gonna happen. Mm-hmm. So I remember distinctly I, I graduated in twenty eighteen and I was in I was in the Netherlands in twenty sixteen. I graduated in twenty eighteen and I'm like, okay, I wanna go to Japan to do sports journalism, specifically baseball. Hmm. And I was applying around there and just didn't land any of the jobs. It's a little harder when you don't speak Japanese. Right, sure. (laughs) And then I was applying. I applied to be a reporter in Rome and that didn't work out. And 
funny enough, that was also, I think, because I wasn't good enough at Italian. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I was just trying to find something in journalism, but internationally and getting kind of frustrated by those by those results. So uh, I ended up staying for a lot, little longer than I wanted to. But that's when I ran into teaching English as a second language as an option. Right. So when you realized that that was an option for you, and of course, that's a, definitely a well-trodden path by a lot of folks that are looking to try to get abroad into different countries and have those amazing experiences. What did you kind of think about when you saw that? I mean, it, did it seem like sort of the perfect opportunity for you to make that transition? And, and how did you pursue it from there? What, what certifications did you need, for example? Yeah. So it all depends, as far as certifications go, it all really depends on where you want to go mm. and how you want to do it. So I'm a, a huge, huge advocate for teaching English as a second language. I cannot recommend it enough to people. Mm. If you, if your intent is just to go and live in another country, it is an amazing way to go somewhere else and live there, especially if you can do a government program, mm. which is what I did. Because oftentimes, I think the government programs have two huge bonuses. One is that the structure is already in place. So your whole life is going to lose all of its structure the second you move to another country. Like nothing is going to be the same. But if your job is like, I work from 8 o'clock to 4.30, Monday through Friday, and I have weekends off, like that's a structure you can build off of. Right. To me... I'm a spontaneous person, but I like to create a structure around my routine, my daily routines at least. So that that is alluring. Hmm. So you had this idea in mind. You knew the qualifications and certifications that hopefully you needed to be able to be successful in that role. But how did you decide on which country to go to? There's so many options out there. You talked about being interested in you know, foreign positions in Japan and Italy. So did you consider those countries? And, and what did you decide on in the end? Yeah. Well, so I was fortunate that when I, so I was really honed in on Japan at the time. And that's when I was just like, okay, the reporter jobs aren't happening. Hmm. How do I work in Japan? And that's how I came across the TEFL Hmm. route. So I had never heard of that before. I, I don't know why. I just, I never knew it was a thing. And so International TEFL Academy, which is a program based out of Chicago, uh, had really good SEO. And I saw their program and just did a really quick like glance over it. And I was like, whatever, I'll call him. I'll talk to him for like 10 minutes. And that 10-minute phone call ended up being an hour long. Hmm. The guy I talked to was just really good. And he knew his stuff and he wasn't pushy. And, you know, he's just being informative. And so at, at the time, it was probably November and it just happens that I missed the JET program, which is JET is the most popular government program in Japan mm-hmm. for teaching English as a second language. So I missed the cut. I'd missed the deadline for that. And he was like, well, it's okay, though. I mean, you have other options. Korea is pretty good. And I was like, well, all right, well, tell me about Korea. I don't know. And he told me about the 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 epic program and just some of the you know basic benefits like how much money you're going to be making like what the what the job might look like and immediately i was like oh that sounds good sign me up bro (laughs) (laughs) and from then it it really was like i 
I signed up for the program. I got TEFL certified and I left the country in a matter of three months. <laughs> nice. So, so you, you just jumped right into a country that you hadn't re- even really thought about before. I, I'm sure there was, <laughs> there was a lot of you know, adjustment and learnings that you had to do on the fly. So what were those first couple months like when you were actually on the ground there in Korea? Ironically, David, I think the less prep you do, the better off you are in a lot of ways <laughs> when you're going somewhere that different. And what I mean by that is, the hardest thing, the thing that is going to make you the least likely to succeed is to have a preconceived notion of how things should mm, be right. when you go live somewhere else. And so I don't know if I was just being smart or if I was just like, all right, let's go, let's see what happens, you know, just being gung ho. But I did like zero research, like as far as like what Korea looks like, or I didn't even know where I was going to live because it's kind of a Russian roulette system for where you get placed. And I was like, I'm not even going to put in a preference. I don't, I don't know where I show up. You know, I don't know what anywhere's like. I don't want to spend like hours and hours being like, oh, the perfect place mm. to go is Seoul. Like that's where I want to be. Right. So I think that allowed me to just look at everything that happened and be like, oh, that's what. Korea is like <laughs> yeah. the countryside. Like, <laughs> sure, they don't live in they don't live in huts. You know? They live in skyscrapers. Okay, like yeah, <laughs> I didn't know anything. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Actually, I think the uh, expectations that we can set up about what it's like to live in a certain place, or how the culture works, or how the job's going to be. I mean, even if you're staying, you know, domestic in your home country, it's uh, the expectations, and frankly, doing all the research that you can can sort of be you know, a bit distracting because ultimately if it's not pushing you toward actually achieving your goal, which might be to, you know, get that next job yeah. or to go abroad, then in a way it's, it's not that it's wasted time. It's just that it's not time that could, you know, be best utilized and, and actually to make those things happen. So I like your approach and, and, uh, how did you find that other people had a similar mentality when they were there or were you one of the few that was just so kind of open-minded and, and, you know, leaving it wide open to new interpretations? I, well, first of all, I don't mean to say that like I just like oh you know I have the right attitude about everything and that's why I did so well. Like I think I was incredibly blessed that the, the school that I ended up at loved me and and we connected really well and that I ended up being kind of like a local celebrity and I don't mind attention right like if somebody else doesn't mm. doesn't like to be noticed all the time maybe they would have hated that mm. so. There are certain things that just line up that were like, this is perfect for me. But on the other side of that, I think my attitude in life, when I'm doing well, when I'm really succeeding, I kind of have that attitude more often. It's like, well, this sounds interesting. I'm going to try it and I'm going to see what happens. And just I'm really flexible and ready to pivot. Mm -hmm. And the entrepreneurs and, you know, people I've met who I really admire, I think that is a characteristic they all mm. have is that they're willing to try stuff and it's never like it has to work perfectly. Sure. You just pivot when it doesn't work. You know, you make an adjustment, you do something different. Like the worst case scenario when you move to another country is that you hate it and you leave. You know, like, yeah, there's some headache that happens with that, of course, like and maybe a little bit of like guilt told everybody you're going to be there for a year and you only made it three months. But right. like, Really, it's not that catastrophic if it's not for you. So I guess it doesn't really answer your question, but 
I find when I try to advise people, because mm. there are people who still ask me like, hey, you know, like, what do you think about Korea? Like, you know, if I was going to go there, what would it be like? I try to pay attention to their personality mm. and kind of like keep in mind for them, like I have a couple, a couple of friends that are interested in moving and the guy is a little bit more open-minded and flexible like that. And the girl is a little bit more routine. I wouldn't say A-type, but she likes to know how things are going to go. Mm-hmm. She's very organized. And I honestly think a lot of times, if you are that way, it's harder mm-hmm. for you to be willing to pivot when you need to. Right. Because you're used to being having this attitude of like, this is how things should be. This is how I need things to be for me to succeed. Right. And part of being overseas in another country is expanding your comfort zone. So that I think is the key element is, are you willing to be uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. It are, and how do you look at, how do you look at something different? Do you see it as an inherently negative thing or do you see it as an inherently exciting thing mm. or a positive thing? I'm lucky. And I think the reason why I love to travel as much as I do is because anything different is cool mm-hmm. like remember i told you i didn't want to go where my siblings went mm-hmm. so I, they know what that's like i you know i don't want to do the same thing i want to do something different right no one in my family went to the netherlands i'm the guy who knows what it's like you know it's, it's something about that is exciting to me and i could go on and on about the opportunities that presented themselves because i did that right so right I think that's the key element is, are you willing to be uncomfortable and can you see cultural differences or those weird setbacks, if you will, as exciting things rather than like disruptions? Sure. In the case of your job, of course, you talked about it giving you some great structure and and sort of that overall security or foundation for your time abroad. But how did you actually really like being an English teacher? Is it something that you found fit your personality and fit the type of work that you like to do? What type of people do you think would make the best English teachers abroad? Because I know it's a common route for people to go abroad and, and people have different mixed you know opinions on it or feelings about it. So it'd be good to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, that's actually a pretty nuanced answer. And I don't know if I could get like a one size fits all Mm -hmm. approach to this, but I can give you what I think made me successful and what I think some other people should be considering at least. Mm -hmm. First of all, I told you I did no research. That's not totally true. The research that I did do was about the culture itself. So when I went, first of all, I have teaching experience. Mm -hmm. I've, I taught in varying degrees before I went to Korea. Never taught English as a second language, but I taught in a classroom and worked with kids a lot. So I knew that I liked working with kids and I I know that I naturally am a pretty good teacher. So that side of it was easier for me to understand what it was like going in. But the other research things I did was trying to understand, for example, how much Korean culture is based on Confucianism Mm. and hierarchy and things like that. Because then when you go in, if you understand, the more you can understand the way that people think, the more when you have a disagreement or something where like, why are they not on the same page with me? You can kind of step back and be like, well, is this a cultural difference? Mm -hmm. Is there something happening here that's like a language barrier issue? 
rather than this person has a problem with me, even though sometimes it really feels personal. Right. A lot of times it's just, it becomes personal because you don't understand. Either. Right. <laughs> sure. So I think that's honestly bigger than like, are you good with grammar or like how good is your, <clears throat> excuse me, how good is your composition or something like that? Right. The other element of this is a lot of the people I met who end up being a little bit disappointed with their job is not because the job was too difficult, but because it was too easy almost mm -hmm. like they were expecting to teach their kids so much and, you know, how to really make this huge impact. And while, of course, I think I made an impact on my students, I was also okay with the fact that, like, the bar <laughs> was set at a certain level and there's a status quo and, like, they want me to do things a certain way. So I'm going to do what I can to teach my students to the best of my ability, but also, like, do what the teachers want me to do because sure. I'm employed by them. You know what I mean? Like right. I'm working for my students, but I'm also working for the school. So I think I, when things happened that was like, I really could be teaching these kids a lot more. Uh, I was like, all right, but okay. Like the kids like me, the school likes me, you know, don't, don't try to fix something that's not broken. Mm -hmm. Right. That American, American saying. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one element of it. And I think the other thing for me personally, this might an answer like what kind of person, this is more in lines with like what made me successful, mm -hmm. I guess. I went in there with very clear goals of what I wanted to achieve for myself, mm -hmm. which this is the first time I think when I moved to Korea, this is the first time I'd really had this kind of really intentional approach to like, what am I supposed to be getting out of this experience? Mm -hmm. And I really... I think it paid off a lot for me. So there was a couple of different things I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to learn how to be alone mm. more often and be comfortable alone because I'm a very extroverted person. I'm always doing a lot of things and I'm very social by nature, but I wanted to feel like if I'm by myself, I can still work on me and be comfortable where I am. And I was provided that opportunity in spades mm. because I was living in the Korean countryside and, you know, I'd work from like 8 to 4.30, but then a lot of days I would go home and I'd be by myself the rest of the day. And I think because I went in there with that, hey, I don't know the language. Maybe no one is even going to know how to talk to me, but I still want to work on these things. I think that really helped me with the first couple months of culture shock that they say happens i didn't get that mm. wow. because i was too busy exploring and also exploring myself mm -hmm. i guess yeah that's a great way to think about it and to that end i mean i'm quite curious what it was like to be in the korean countryside in this role because i think when many people think about life in korea they imagine the you know the life in seoul and uh, everything they see on you know tv and k-pop and yeah. all that stuff so since you were given that you know great opportunity to be able to go there work there teach and of course ultimately to be in the countryside so you know what was that like it sounds like you got some attention from the local people as well so um yeah it, it's it's yeah. a different perspective love to hear about it oh my gosh yeah it was it was perfect for me and I, Honestly, I think this gets back to what I was saying before is like 
if you can align your gut feeling with something and just not overthink it and just go, that's those are the times, at least for myself, that I've just really done well. Mm. It happened for me when I went to the Netherlands. You know, I was just like, hey, this program looks cool. I like the I like the counselor I'm working with, the advisor I'm working with, and everything sounds like it's going to be good, so I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I went, and it was awesome. You know, I didn't overthink it, didn't question like, oh, really, the Netherlands is cool, but maybe I should try Spain. Mm. No, I just was like, okay, well, this is it. I'm going to go because it feels good. Right. And that was kind of how I felt about going to Korea, too. Mm. I had a couple different things I wanted to work on. Paying off debt was one. Spending time alone was one. And then I really wanted to try to learn the language mm. as much as I could as well. And so the reason I think I succeeded so well in the countryside was no one spoke English. Mm. Mm. I was one of very few expats. And as they say with language learning or language acquisition, the more you can totally immerse yourself in the language, the better mm. off you are. Mm. Uh, but on the same hand, I had a couple of very key what's the word I want to use here? I had people that I could hold on to when I really needed to. Mm-hmm. I could call my mom if I wanted to talk to somebody in English. I had a neighbor right above me who was another American English teacher, mm. and I could talk to him if I needed to. And I made, and this was also key, a couple of the younger teachers, Korean teachers, were willing to speak English with me, mm. and I would listen in Korean oftentimes to their conversations. So if I wanted to communicate, if I wanted to socialize, I would oftentimes find myself just listening mm-hmm. to all the Korean, and then I would just respond in English mm. or in a mix of Konglish is what they mm. call it when it's Korean and English. And that was awesome because I could really connect with these younger teachers. So that was very formative for me. And then also the fact that I was really open to doing whatever the school wanted me to mm-hmm. do in the early going. I think I created really good relationships with the school. And so everybody loved me. Mm. I just was really fortunate that way. So I was comfortable in my school position. I liked spending time with, you know, the teachers and the students outside of class, which is a huge deal. You're supposed to spend a lot of time with your school. Like you'll go after school to do a huge dinner with all of your coworkers mm. and the principal, who's basically like the empress of the school. <laughs> yeah. And you go drink together, you know, like it's, it's different. But I was like, it's so cool. Of course I'll go, you know? Right. So I I set myself up for success in those ways, I think. And then the other element is a little bit different in Europe, maybe. But in Asian cultures, I found there is zero expectation for you to know the language Mm -hmm. or to understand them. As an expat, they just expect you to be as a Weigukin, a foreigner. They don't expect you to know anything. They just expect you to be... I don't know what they expect you to be. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like, if you can say hello in the language, you're already like blowing people's minds. Yeah. Same in Japan. You know? Yeah. So there's, there's a certain element there where they're like, oh, your Korean is so good. And then like, oh, you know what nunchi is, which is like a concept of like how you treat other people mm. and how that, you know, pay attention to the, I think in Japanese, I forget the term, but it's, it's called like, 
the translation is something like uh, feeling the air. Kuki o yomu. Yeah. Idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. And I embrace that wholly. And so I think people respected me for that because they could tell, oh, he's a f- white dude, but he's trying to understand us. Mm-hmm. I like that. And so I think that element, that really, that really made, made it, it a good experience for me. And then the other thing was people stared, people like, you know, look at you, whatever. I, I was just like, well, yeah, of course. I'm the only white dude in like a very large radius. Like you've never seen someone like me before. Mm. Like, I didn't bother me, you mm. know? And then I was really lucky to make a lot of Korean friends, <laughs> a lot of Korean friends. And that is something I guess is not that common. I, I don't know. I, a lot of the other expats I talked to, they just become friends with other lo- with other expats, yeah, which is right. cool, but I really wanted to make local friends. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was way more rewarding. So starting out, why was it that you had this desire to be able to uh, speak Korean? I mean, given your goals in terms of going over there, because it's an interesting one, given that you didn't have, it sounds like, much forethought into going into Korea. Whereas in my case, you know, my journey with Japanese started when I was 12. So I was always gung-ho about that. So why was that one of your main goals as part of this process? It wasn't less about Korean and more about learning the local language. Mm -hmm. Because there's a saying that I'm probably going to butcher, but it's like, when you can communicate with somebody, you translate like your ideas from your mind. Mm-hmm. But when you can speak to them in their own language, you can speak to their mm-hmm. heart. Mm-hmm. And so I guess for me, it's like, I want to be able to show, I want to understand this culture and embrace this culture as much as possible wherever I am. Mm-hmm. So when I'm visiting Vietnam, you know, I don't learn nearly as much Vietnamese and it's way, way hard, it was way harder for me, but... I tried to speak Vietnamese mm-hmm. a little bit at least, you know, and if I visited Singapore or, or Malaysia or whatever, I tried to pay attention to what are the customs like, you know, and, and do those things, which I just feel like, you know, you're missing an integral element of the experience mm-hmm. if you're not trying to become as much of an expert on the way that life is in this place. Mm-hmm as possible and the healthy side effect is the more i was willing to, for example the more i was willing to speak korean the more people were comfortable talking mm-hmm. to me because I, I think it's similar in J- japan you can tell me if i'm wrong people are terrified mm. absolutely terrified of speaking english right. like they like i would walk up to somebody and you could see them like like just freeze mm-hmm. because they're like, oh my God, it's a white dude. He's walking towards me. I mean, I, I got to like, I got to pull out my eighth grade English. Like, I, I don't know. It'd be like the equivalent of you're in the US and you see somebody from Mexico or, um, you know, France or wherever walking up to you and you'd be like, oh my God, I, I don't know enough mm-hmm. French. Like, <laughs> how am I going <laughs> to, what am I going to do when he talks to me? Right. right? Like, um, right. And then if I come up to them and I speak in Korean, you could see them just relax and also freak out. It's yeah. like, I know any English, I don't know any Korean at all. So right. I, yeah, from, I didn't know that going in, but that was a pleasant side effect is that the more Korean I was willing to speak, the more 
relationships opened up to me and the the more profound the experience became. And how did you pick up the language? It sounds like obviously you had people to practice with, you heard it, you know, you tried to use it, but did you go in sort of any formal course or, you know, do you have any resources that you'd recommend for people out there trying to pick it up? For picking up Korean? Yeah. Yeah, talktomeinkorean.com is amazing. Hmm. Talktomeinkorean.com is free for the most part, at least, and it integrates really well with the language app Memrise, M-E-M-R-I-S-E. That podcast that they do is really, really good because, first of all, it's Two, two or three or four Koreans who are doing it and it's just very like casual and I don't know, it's they're fun to listen to. They make it entertaining. But also the guy is like a really good linguist. I wish I remembered his name specifically, but he's really good at explaining Korean to an English listener mm-hmm. and, and kind of making you understand. Because for me, I, w- with language acquisition, if I don't understand why it, you say that like grammatically, I actually have a really hard time mm-hmm. knowing when to say it. So they did a really good job of being like, this is the phrase and this is why it's the phrase. You, you know what I mean? Sure. So I, I didn't take an actual course of any kind, although that probably would have been awesome. Um, I just learned the alphabet before. And then while I was there, I spent a lot of time listening Mm. and very little time talking, which is not normal for me. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that was actually another, another really pleasant aspect of the experience is that I got a much better at listening and paying attention to body language. Cause they say it's like 55% of a message is from body Mm. language. Another 22% is from the way that you say it. Mm. And then it's like not that much is actual work. Right, right. So you'd be surprised how much you can understand, even if your like actual like vocabulary level is like very small. Mm. I was pretty confident I knew what people were saying after a while, even though I could only understand a couple of the words. Yeah. <laughs> Good way to, to think about it. And, and yeah, I've seen that in my case as well over here in Portugal or in Germany. So that's good yeah. to know. It sounds like in general that you were having this great experience there. You were teaching, you were learning Korean, you were getting uh, a lot, making a lot of friends and getting, uh, you know, really settled in the culture there. But at the same time, now, of course, you're back in the U.S. So could you just kind of walk us through your decision making process there? What happened and, you know, what what brought you back? Yeah. Okay. so first of all, I don't mean to say that it wasn't hard. There was certainly a lot of really hard things. Uh, the funny thing is people would always say, like, oh, you know, the, the first three months are going to be so hard. Like, you know, you're going to wish you were not there and blah, blah, blah. The, that never happened to me in the first three months. But like month five or six, mm. for whatever reason, I was feeling very alone. Mm. I felt kind of isolated for a while. Part of that was there was a teacher at the school that I became really good friends with. And he transferred to another school mm. halfway through the year. And so all of a sudden, mm. this person I was spending a lot of time with was no, this Korean uh, teacher that I became really close with was no longer there. Mm. And so there's a period of time where I just really had to push through some of the things. You know, there are times when you are surrounded by a bunch of people that you don't know what they're saying and they don't really know how to interact with you and you can feel like you're alone in a room. Mm-hmm. So mm. I, it's not to say that it's all, it was all good all the time but 
I find in my experience that pushing through those things is what makes the experience. Hmm. Like I said, pushing, pushing past your comfort level is actually what allows you to create a new comfort level. Mm -hmm. And the thing I'll end with on that, on that note is that I have no negative memories from my time in Korea. Like I don't remember the negative Mm -hmm. things, which is a human at a human level is not common. I, you pay way more attention to the negative Mm -hmm. memories, but I honestly only remember the good stuff. Like it was a really good experience for me. Shoot. And like, if, if you could do that, like, wouldn't you like it, if you could know that, like, hey, I'm going to spend a year doing something, I'm only going to have good memories from it, you'd jump immediately. Sure. So, so there's that. As far as coming back, it was really hard, right? Because I remember I was nearing the end of the school year and I was telling my students, like, hey, you know, I decided not to be here next year. And they kind of like, I don't think they got it. At mm. first. I was like, I remember I was going into classrooms. I was like, oh, they're going to be all sick. <laughs> Great. You know, <laughs> you're hoping to get some, some tears, uh, elip- elicit some responses. Let's say. Yeah. I did, instead of blanks. Yeah. Like, all right, whatever. <laughs> okay. Have fun. Bye bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like, all right, teacher, we'll see you later. Like, <laughs> but, but I was like, yeah, cause I was all sad and they were just like, I don't think they got mm. it right away. And then as the school year was nearing its end and they, my sixth graders were graduating, they were all really sad. Mm. I was like, well, thank God they're going to miss yeah. it. It makes me feel a little better. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the way I described it is like one of the challenges of moving a lot, whether it's within the U.S. or, or traveling abroad is you get really good at setting down roots and making deep relationships, but the roots never go deep enough that you stay Mm. in one place necessarily, but it's always painful to pull them out, Mm. right? Like if you plant something and it's starting to grow really well, like that means the roots are starting to spread right Mm. underground and it pulling up the roots, you're automatically going to be taking some of the soil with you. Mm. So on the one hand, if we follow that metaphor, on the one hand, it's really painful because you're ripping up what has become your life. Like one way I knew I succeeded in Korea is that I'd be walking around and I'd I'd have a realization of like, oh, I'm in a foreign country right now. Mm. Like that's how comfortable I was able to become. That I was like, this is my home. Mm-hmm. And I think a big part of that was making so many f- local friends mm-hmm. and Oh, the positive experience we talked about. But on the other hand, that's really, that's really hard because I really was going to miss all these people and who knows when you're going to see them again. So it was a difficult, it was a difficult choice to leave. I could definitely say in hindsight, it was the right decision. Mm -hmm. But at the time I, you know, I just knew I didn't want to get stuck. I'd seen too many expat teachers who, they loved the first year, they stayed a second year, then the third year, and then the fourth year, and now they're just comfortable, and they're not staying because it's the right place mm. for them. They're just staying because what else would I do? And as much as I love teaching, it didn't. it's not the main thing I wanted to do. Mm. So mm. I think that was the main reason I decided not to renew my contract. And then 
as Providence would show, the coronavirus came, mm. like, literally right before I left. Mm. Mm. So I ended up being better off, I think. Yeah, you were <laughs> quite fortunate with the timing, in a sense. I mean, you, you had the, in a sense, you had the difficult challenge of actually making the decision to go back and, and go through those different emotions and things. But ultimately, you know, I guess, as you say, <laughs> as Providence would have it, that uh, that happened anyway. So y- your timing was quite interesting, for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, and to put it in perspective for those listening, I left for Korea and f- I arrived in Korea in February of 2019. And I left Korea in February of 2020. In fact, my departure ticket and my return ticket are the exact same day. And I have both of them mm. still, mm. which was not planned. But so if you think about that timeline, we didn't start experiencing the coronavirus in the United States until about February or March. But in Asia, it really was around in November. Mm. So mm-hmm. and and then people knew about it in December. Right. Or maybe early January, I think. So I was traveling probably while it was first going around. And then I was packing to leave at the height of the craziness in Korea. Mm. Like I remember my bus from Samchampo in Gyeongsangnam-do, the area I was in, to Seoul, which is like a four-hour bus ride. I was the only person on the bus. Wow. There was nobody else. just me and the bus driver, and I was way in the back. Yeah, that must have been a bit surreal. <laughs> it's hard to even imagine. <laughs> Also, because those buses are usually packed full of people sure. because they, do, they want to leave the small town right. <laughs> somewhere else. Yeah, so it was weird. So you made it back to the U.S. sort of, in a sense, just in time as things were getting locked down. Uh, obviously, <laughs> a very different experience than you might have expected uh, coming back to the States. But how's it been since then yeah. for you and how have you managed these last 18 months or so or more, I suppose? And, and what's new for you or what's next for you, rather? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I will say people always talk about culture shock going to another country, but I think reverse culture shock is much more real, mm. to me anyway. It's like returning from the Netherlands and being back in the US and like having to drive all the time mm. was mm. weird, you know, right. for example. Right. And then having to deal with passive aggressive people again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, and then returning from Korea, ironically, is exact opposite culture shock. Because so one of the things that I I recognize now is so awesome is the Netherlands is the most outspoken, straightforward, Mm. cut cut all the BS culture in the world. Asian cultures are pretty much exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I have been able to experience both of both sides of the coin, so to speak. And that one culture, you just say it. It doesn't matter if they're older than you, younger than you, like your boss, whatever. You tell them what you mean, and people respect you. For mm. it. And then in the nether, uh, sorry, in Korea or Japan or China or somewhere like that, you don't do that. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. You you need to be way more diplomatic. Mm-hmm. And there's pros and cons to both. But I remember I was flying back and I was like flying into like Dallas or something, and the air hostess was just like really. I felt like she was in my face mm. <laughs> because I was not used to people being like very assertive and vocal right. to me anymore. So like, you know, when she was asking if I wanted the kimbap, 
I was like, <laughs> first of all, you don't call it that. And second of all, like, why are you so close? Right. It was hard uh, at first. Yeah. But yeah, then the other thing was all of a sudden I was back and I had to figure out what was mm-hmm. next. And that those transition periods are always very challenging for me, figuring out like what is the next step. Once I know what it is, it's a lot easier for me to just mm-hmm. go. But the first couple months were difficult that way. Yeah. But yeah, I, I guess that's where the podcast starts coming into play a little bit more. And then my voiceover business, which I now own. Mm-hmm. So I'd started the podcast alone with Peter while living in Korea. And it was originally just this meta idea, kind of almost a way for me to journal my Mm. experience and talk about some of the things I was trying to work on. Because as I told you before, I was trying to work on a lot of self-growth. And so I'd share my thoughts on New Year's resolutions and culture shock and travel and things like that. And as time went on, I started to interview people, just people I'd met traveling or who I knew were really interesting and it kind of started to grow into something a little bit more for me mm. where I was like, you know what? I, I don't know if anybody's going to listen to it. It might really just be a love <laughs> myself and I, but I'm going to go ahead and start, you know, putting these out there. And so I'd studied journalism. Mm. I'd worked as a TV news anchor and a radio guy and a newsprint guy. But this was my first foray into podcasting, and it reminded me how much I like the audio Mm. format. Mm. And as I was saying to you before, one of the reasons I left Korea is because I knew teaching wasn't something I wanted to do long term. And that's really when the idea of voice acting started creeping in a little bit more for me. So from February of 2020 until now, I've been kind of just slowly kind of dipping my toes in more and figuring things out for a while. It was just, you know, taking a class and, you know, doing some Lego stop motion movies. Oh, cool. Friends of mine, some stop motion <laughs> filmers. I just played some characters, you know, just for fun, very low stakes things. You know, I'm not getting paid, but I'm just practicing. Yeah, sure. And it for a cool project. And as luck would have it come this last summer, I started my, started my company, Peter Kirsting Productions. I'm launching season two of the podcast. So nice. it's it's been good. It's been a crazy, it's a very weird year and a half or whatever it's been, but it's been a really productive for me as far as figuring out what the next steps are. Great. And where can our listeners or viewers find more information on those different projects? Yeah. Or, well, first of all, if you want to go to peterkirsting.com, that's K-E-R-S-T-I-N-G.com. That is my website. You can find my voiceover stuff there. You can you can request a demo. And you can also check out the show notes for any upcoming episodes of Alone with Peter on there and subscribe as well. So those are the main, that's the, that's the easiest spot to hit everything. Mm-hmm. I'll also give you a link tree, which will go to each of the individual platforms because I have a couple different social media platforms. But if you're interested in the podcast, Alone with Peter, that's my Instagram. Or if you want to follow my personal professional profile, that's Real Peter K. Excellent. 
Yeah, definitely uh, put those in the show notes and send some folks over there and hope that you'll get some great traction with the new season as well. But just to wrap us up here, I'm curious about what you see in the future for you. Of course, it's been a challenging year and a half plus that goes without saying, and and you've definitely made the most of it. It's great to hear about your new projects, but do you see yourself trying to get abroad again in the future when things become a bit clearer or like, what's your thinking about it? Yeah. So I fell so in love with Asia that I knew I wanted to go back and I met my, I met my now fiance during this last year and a half Mm. or so and convinced her to get TEFL certified. Nice. So we just finished our, we just finished our application to Japan. Oh, wow. The jet program, fingers crossed. And we're also going to apply to go back to Korea. And part of my thought process here is to continue to pursue my voiceover company, but while also teaching English mm. second language, because one of the huge pros that I did not mention before is because your schedule is as regimented as it is, you know exactly what's expected of you. And honestly, at least to me, it's not that challenging of a job. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of time, Mm -hmm. free time to work on other things. And so Mm -hmm. to be able to travel, pay off debt, and pursue your own projects at the same time while teaching in another country is something I couldn't do in the States. Mm -hmm. So... The, the the next couple of years, I hope that looks like teaching in Japan or Korea and expanding my voiceover business so that whenever our stint as teachers ends, I'll be really, really kind of positioned well to really scale the business and Great. grow the podcast and all that good stuff. Awesome. I love it. Uh, meet, and meet you in Portugal and talk about what's it, what's it like in Europe. You know? Yeah, of course. I haven't been back, haven't been back so. Yeah, definitely. And uh, hopefully I'll be swinging by Japan one of these days when we can. So maybe we'll find a way to, to meet up one place or another around the world. But thanks so much for sharing your story today. It's been awesome to hear about all your adventures and definitely wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors. Thanks again and look forward to keeping in touch. Absolutely, David. And Excited to have you on along with Peter. We'll have to talk more then. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. You can quickly find out where and how to rate us at ratethispodcast.com slash expatempire. If you know anyone who would appreciate this podcast, please tell them about it so we can continue growing the global Expat Empire community. Keep up to date on new Expat Empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for our newsletter to get our free ebook, Top 10 Tips for Moving Abroad, right now. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Expat Empire, so be sure to follow us there. We are currently offering free consulting calls to discuss your moving plans and how Expat Empire can help you to achieve them. Please visit our website to schedule your call today. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in the coming weeks.